very dangerous, I think, to believe that one size fits all. When it comes to trauma, I've been doing this work for over 40 years mm -hmm. with, you know, a, a, a specialty in this area. And, and one thing I've learned is one size doesn't fit all. Hello, and thank you for joining me here on Hope to Recharge podcast, the podcast that's designed to break the stigma around mental health and to create some hope and inspiration and give some practical tips to those that are struggling with mental health, whether it's from personal stories to break the stigma or some advice from professionals in the mental health community. Whether you are struggling with mental health on your own or you know a loved one that is struggling, we are here to support you and to create a community so you know you are not alone. The road to recovery can be difficult and challenging. At Hope to Recharge, we believe that in mental health, together is always better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for joining me here today. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp.com, the online platform for therapy. Are you thinking of starting therapy or are you in need of a new therapist? Go to BetterHelp.com and find the therapist that meets your need. You can access them from your phone, from your tablet, from your computer. No matter where you are in the world, no matter what time of day, you can find your therapist that fits your need. BetterHelp is giving us 10% off the first month. They are so affordable. Go check them out. BetterHelp.com forward slash hope to recharge that's betterhelp.com forward slash hope to recharge gift yourself therapy go get yourself wellness today on the hope to recharge podcast it's an honor to have dr david pelkowitz a clinical psychologist whose career over the past 40 years has focused on clinical practice and research efforts in areas related to trauma child abuse and parenting he is currently the Strauss Chair in Psychology and Education at the Israeli Graduate School of Jewish Education at Yeshiva University. He also serves as Special Assistant to the President, as well as teach courses in pastoral psychology to the Yeshiva's rabbinical students. Before assuming that position, Dr. Pelkowitz was Director of Psychology at North Shore University Hospital and Clinical Professor of Psychology and Psychiatry at the New York School of Medicine. It's an honor to have Dr. Pelkowitz on our show. And now the host of the Hope to Recharge podcast, Matana. Hello, and thank you for joining me here today. Today I have a very special guest that I'm very excited to introduce, Dr. David Pelkowitz. First of all, thank you for joining me here, Dr. Pelkowitz. My pleasure, my honor. I'm so impressed with the amazing work you're doing. So thank I'm, you for allowing me to be part of this. Thank you. Thank you for all the research. Thank you for all the work. Thank you for all the um, talks you give around the world and the hope and the courage and the education because the, the world is moving so fast now and it's hard to keep up with the psychology that's needed to, to help the world deal with how fast it's going. So we need leaders like you to help us really with our children, with ourselves, with our relationships. And it's, it's really heartwarming to know that we have leaders like you in our communities and in the world in general. I'm going to go back into the area that I want to speak to you about today, which is trauma. One of the things that I've noticed a lot since I went through my mental health crisis, which I wasn't aware of crises beforehand, I grew up in a very traditional home with everything was fine and dandy. And then um, I had three kids and then I hit rock bottom in a hospital and they told me that I have 
uh, mental illness, and it was diagnosed through a panic attack, which I thought was a heart attack or an aneurysm, things that I didn't even know to define. And when I was doing research about how how do we develop mental illness and what is mental illness, one of the first things, the words that I kept on hearing is, did you have a trauma? Um, did you go through a trauma growing up? Can you think of your first trauma? And I'm like, what is a trauma? Like, let's define trauma before we start working on trauma. And I started researching it and there's so much literature that it's a little bit controversial because it's very hard to define trauma. And I would love to hear from you before we analyze deep into dealing with trauma, what is trauma? Again, there are probably as many definitions of trauma as um, as there are of almost any other area of mental health, where often trauma means different things to different people. It might be helpful to think about it in, in two ways. One is any event, one that's outside the range of usual experience, where one feels kind of completely overwhelmed. We know, though, that it's something that you have to pay attention to if it's something that goes along with kind of post-traumatic stress disorder types of symptoms, like flashbacks, feeling like you're reliving the experience, high levels of physiologic arousal when there's any reminder of the traumatic event, avoidance, where you're avoiding any area that might put you in touch um, and trigger your, your belief in, in uh, that, that, that somehow you're in danger or vulnerable. But life is partly about, about challenge. So it's extremely um, common to go through traumatic events. What sets it apart is if it's such an overwhelming event that you have a constellation of symptoms that either interfere with functioning, start to dominate your life, you have trouble digesting what happened, and if for a sustained period of time after the trauma, you are just not only not yourself, you're just you're just numbed out and avoiding avoiding living life the way you had before. Then you know it's something that might really very much need to be taken care of the way you would severe depression or severe anxiety. So you're basically, if I understood correctly, you're saying that trauma is not the event, it's how we process it individually. Right. And it, it could be the very same event could be processed completely differently depending on how it goes. A number of years ago when I was um, a director of psychology at North Shore Hospital, now Northwell, there was um, a plane crash. Um, an Avianca plane ran out of fuel as it was landing um, at JFK. And um, the pilot crashed the plane into the backyard of Johnny McEnroe's parents, famous tennis star. Yeah. And there were two brothers sitting next to each other, one ten and one eight. Mm-hmm. One of them was fast asleep, had never flown before, and he wakes up on top of a tree in the McEnroe's backyard, mm. this famous tennis player's back, uh, parents' backyard. And to him, he to him, he thought he had never landed in a plane before. He had never flown before. He thought, oh, this is what happens. When a plane lands, you land on the top of a tree. He was totally asymptomatic. He had no, post, no PTSD symptoms. His brother was a mess. We all process things very differently based on temperament, based on prior experiences, 
and based on the way we process the event. So does that mean that it, he will he didn't process it or maybe he went into denial and it will come up later on in life? It was still trauma. Right, right. Yeah, it, yeah, but it's but again it's it's often in the mind of the beholder. So there are many different uh, pathways to the way one processes it. What goes into whether or not it develops into something that that you really need to pay attention to. Again, combination of temperament. If you have an anxious temperament, you're going to have a harder time. Mm-hmm. If you've had a tough life until now, you know, a lot of prior traumatic events, it's probably going to be a little tougher. You know, if it happens in the context of somebody who's going through terrible marital problems or financial problems or prior losses, it's going to be a whole different experience than people who are by their very nature have had a more a life that's more associated with resilience. Um, I'm going to use me as an example because I like no uh, being firsthand. So for me, when I woke up with a panic attack in the hospital and they asked me if I had trauma and I said, I have no idea what you're talking about. I had the best upbringing I can think of. Like I had the best, pa- I have the best parents. Everything was fine. No abuse. I couldn't think about trauma until I started going into therapy and then things started coming up. So sometimes we need to go deep dive to find out that there was trauma. So how do we define a mental illness that is based on trauma before we even know that there was trauma versus somebody just said, oh, someone abused me and there's trauma. Like it's hard to define when you don't know clearly what you're looking for. Yeah, I, my, I hear what you're saying. My bias though is that as a general rule of thumb, if you're doing okay and you're feeling resilient and what you went through, you're feeling okay with it. You're not having, you're not depressed, you're not anxious, you're going through life. There are many people who in the face of some incredibly difficult kind of life experiences really are, are okay. It doesn't always have to, it has to do with a whole array of, um, of events, again, intensity of events, horrible events, almost anybody will have a post-traumatic event. In your case, uh, because of the the impact of uh, how incredibly frightening the panic attack and you thought you were losing your mind or having a heart attack or totally losing it, of course, that's, you know, it requires a whole reordering of your life. You know, we go through life feeling pretty invulnerable and you've had a very easy life or a very trauma-free life until then and then this happens. It does require a resetting, mm-hmm. um, and therapy could often be incredibly helpful. Not everybody has a response that's going to require necessarily specialized treatment. So we're basically defining that trauma is an individual personality and, and the way he, that person is processing an event. And once they want to deal with it, what happens when they feel that the person feels that they they went through trauma and the support that they're around doesn't even re- doesn't even recognize that event as trauma and then you're looked upon as like you're so you're so sensitive like just get a life that's not trauma but that person is really seeing it as trauma as a therapist what do you tell loved ones that yeah. that yeah. there's such a difference cuz obviously you're saying it's the it's in the eyes of the person that's going through it. Right, absolutely. And nobody, no parent, no friend, no acquaintance has any right 
to minimize the pain that somebody is going through. If you have a family member who's going through a very difficult event and they're having a very hard time with it, by definition, you have to be there for them at their side. And you have to listen and understand. And, and, you know, one of the key predictors of how people build up resilience in the face of very difficult times is for people, especially close friends and family members, to be there at their side in a non-judgmental way, in an empathic way, and to allow them to feel what they're feeling um, and to just give unqualified support. That's that's a I find I find that it's easier said than done because we could do it until it's too much and then we we just don't understand. I know with me a lot of people were were not understanding. I had an amazing support group. I happen to have had an incredible support group, even though many didn't understand. But the more I'm in this world of um, showing empathy and sympathy, the more I'm hearing my husband loves me and my my mother loves me, my sister loves me but they don't get it. They just don't get me. And I, I'm not getting the support I need. It's really hard to understand what they're going through if they didn't experience it before. Right, what tools right. do, you, do you give support? Yeah, terrific, terrific question. So, um, so part of what often happens in therapy for trauma in a very concrete way is that the therapist can work with the client going through this in helping them learn how to effectively recruit support, how to assertively and uh, effectively let the people you're closest to know what you need, know how to, um, how to give uh, uh, the right kind of support. And support comes in many different flavors. You may mm-hmm. find one friend that what you need from them is concrete kind of advice or concrete kind of help. Another person, you may need to have them there just at your side, non-judgmentally. Mm-hmm. Another person, you may need for them to, uh, to, to just help you distract yourself. Mm-hmm. And at different times, different coping mechanisms are going to work for you. And one size doesn't fit all. And often, effective recruitment and education of those closest to the person going through a tough time includes just being there, just being there and and knowing a who to ask, how to ask, how to express gratitude for appropriate kind of help, and, and how to figure out that different members or different parts of your support system may very well be offering very different things. Some people right away go into the problem-solving mode. Right. When you just need a warm, sympathetic ear without going into the problem-solving mode. But sometimes you may need somebody, and it's going to vary tremendously. You know, one of the most important kinds of pieces of, of wisdom that we've known for many, many years, the Talmud talks about if you go through a tough time, um, some people deal with it by talking, you know, by talking things out, and they're helped very much by verbal forms of getting support in the face of trauma, in the face of overwhelming events. And some people need to distract themselves. And what the research shows is both ways are equally valid and different people at different times will help you, will help you focus 
and you know will, will, will help you cope in the right way. I find that it's a very hard balance. It's a very hard balance. I don't think we have enough education given to loved ones that don't recognize the mental illness way into life. So you can have a child that at eight, eight or ten or fifteen suddenly develops this mental illness or a trauma and they're they're like wait where's my child or where's my spouse i knew or where's my mother i knew or where's the friend i knew and it was easy to support them when you knew who they were but now you suddenly this new being takes over the person you love and after a while it just gets so tiring how do we continue loving the child the friend the the parent, the spouse that is very draining because they need so much support and we, we don't know how to give it properly because whatever we're doing is not right. How do we not burn bridges? Right, right. I hear exactly right. I mean, there's, there's a concept that's often used in situations that we're talking about uh, called psychoeducation, where, where maybe the most important thing is to educate family members of individuals who have developed um, different kinds of mental illnesses, be it um, severe anxiety or depression or um, post-traumatic stress responses. And the average parent often, or the average family member, often has no idea what to do. And sometimes they'll respond with anxiety, anger, or exactly the wrong thing. They'll get angry, they'll get irritable, they won't know how to find the right level of support. And something that could be extremely helpful is just simple education. Like, here's what you have to understand. You know, depression or anxiety, it's tied to the way the neurotransmitter system is working in the brain. And it's no different than any other kind of illness. And just like you don't get angry at somebody who might, God forbid, have cancer or might have some other or who breaks their arm or leg and needs a cast, or, you know, any other kind of physically based illness, no reason to get angry about this. And what you need is here are some, here are some examples of how to listen empathically, how to find the right balance between support and, and gentle pushing. It doesn't come with an instruction manual, especially when it's a change from the child you've always known. So psychoeducation is amazingly helpful. Let me tell you about the chicken pox analogy because I think it's a helpful analogy. There's often the example given of two families. They both, they both have a child who has chicken pox, but they live in a rural area with no easy access to medical care. In one case, let's say it's an only child. They never saw chicken pox before. They're in this rural area. They, they, it's not easy for them to figure out who to even ask. It's terrifying, right? It's, um, will my child live? Will my child die? Are these pox all over his or her face going to cause permanent facial disfigurement? Do I let them scratch? Do I let them not scratch? In the other case, same level severity, chicken pox, child number five, all of the older four had chicken pox, have so been there, done that. And their next door neighbor and best friend is the pediatrician. What happens then? It's a little bit of a pain, but it's no big deal. I've been through it before. What's the difference between case one and case two? It's knowledge. Yes. Just the knowledge of that second example is enough to totally change the psychological experience relative to the first example. That's what psychoeducation does, and that's something that can be incredibly helpful in terms of um, advocating for there to be better understanding 
of how to handle a child of a, you know a child or an adult child who suddenly develops severe panic or severe anxiety or severe depression and it could be in any relationship it can be also in marriage i was married 10 or 12 years before the new matana took me over uh, from a happy-go-lucky functioning mother or wife to somebody that didn't get out of bed didn't want to smile didn't want to communicate so how do i still love this person that I don't recognize and how do I give unconditionally? A child is a little bit easier to push our limits and to try. Okay, so we get we get frustrated and then we feel the, the, the parent guilt again with a sister or with a, par, um, a child, a parent or a best friend or a, a spouse. It's really hard to have that unconditional love to suddenly re-love this new person that we don't even know. And when it's taking a long time to recover, it's really hard to, okay, we go through the education, but we don't see any change. What happens? What do we do? Right, right. I hear, I hear. And that's, that's, exactly, that's exactly why I think an outside therapist who's, who's been through this before can be extremely helpful, especially to a spouse and to a parent or to best friends. And you often do need guidance because the healing, it's very hard to deal with this stuff alone. The healing comes from enabling and educating those who are who are closest to the to the person to the person who's who's uh, who's suffering. And by the way, just the knowledge, just this alone, the knowledge that this is not a choice; it's an illness, and the knowledge that there are a lot of very effective ways that you could be helpful. And that perhaps the most helpful thing is to be there unconditionally at your loved one's side, giving them support and validating their feelings and listening empathically and non-judgmentally makes an enormous, enormous difference. I hear a lot of support. Um, people saying, am I enabling them to move forward because I'm giving them so much support? Am I taking the power away because they are loving the fact that they're the victims, quote unquote, and they're just staying in the victim mode. They're not doing the process. I'm supporting, 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 but they're not doing the work needed because they're stuck in the victim mode. What do we do then? Yeah. I mean, what happens when the family member is not delivering, you're saying? Is not doing the work necessary, going to therapy or doing the mental exercises needed. The support is supporting, but they're becoming like a dry well. They can't give if the other person is still in yeah. trauma, is in the victim mode. But do we give a time to, to trauma? Could we say, okay, it's nine months and uh, 20 days. It's time to move on. You're no longer a victim. You're no longer, you should be past this. Can we do that? Or do we give an endless amount of time for trauma to just unfold? And if it's going to be a lifetime of trauma, so love unconditionally. Yeah. Ex again, excellent, excellent point. Um, yeah. What I would, um, there, that's why it's rarely something that could be supported by just one person. Mm -hmm. Very often, uh, first of all, there are amazing people out there. It may be other people who are going through the same thing where you can mm -hmm. support each other with groups, mm -hmm. but like what you're doing with, you know, with, um, trying to help others and with this podcast mm -hmm. and um, with sometimes the most effective thing you could do though is to recognize you can't do this alone. One of the images that, that I find extremely helpful is a study done a few years back 
where they take people, put them at the bottom of a hill, and they say, look at the hill and estimate the steepness of this hill. If you're alone, the hill looks very steep. If you have somebody at your side, the hill looks less steep. Mm. The closer you are to the person at your side, the less steep the hill looks and the less tired you get walking up the hill. That's the key. That's the key. And to recognize it's rare that this could be done alone. There's some unbelievable people out there who, who you might be able to recruit who could, be, who could be amazingly helpful. They're wonderful organizations. They're wonderful uh, ways of, of, of tapping into that. But there's also some people who you might be able to tap to help out. There's also times that family members can be there. Sometimes the family members themselves get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And the key is to, it's interesting, of all the emotions that might be helpful, and I'm not saying this in any way to invalidate the right to feel frustrated and angry, it's interesting. Gratitude and figuring out a way to be grateful for what you have and who you have is often most associated with resilience in this situation. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, I'll give you an example. After 9-11, in these large-scale studies done of people who were most affected by 9-11, let's say people living within a few mile radius of the World Trade Center who might have experienced direct loss, and they followed these people, let's say, over 10 years, Mm -hmm. they find the ones who recovered most quickly and most effectively are those who were able to focus on what they had and on the positives in their lives and were able to connect deeply to the people in their support system. And those who stayed mired in anger, however justified, at the terrorists. How could you not want to kill the terrorists? How could you not be totally, totally, you know, mired in rage at them? The most, the most valid feeling in the world. But we, always, we often have a choice. We could choose always to focus on what we have and what we have control over or to focus on anger and what we don't have. And what the research seems to show is focusing on the positive, doing the positive, giving to others, you know, like your name, which is a palindrome, right? When you give and you get back, right? Mm-hmm. Matan, mm-hmm. to give, you know, kind of embedded right. in the right. name. Those are the people who do the best, mm-hmm. people who are doing what you're doing. Mm-hmm. They do the best long term. When it doesn't, it doesn't take away from the validity. But ultimately, the primary emotion that tends to work best are positive emotions. You know, happiness and recovery comes from focusing on what you have and being grateful for what you have. In no way invalidating the right to have strong negative feelings as well. I think that's important for both the supporter and the person that's going through the trauma. And I think it's easier for the person that's supporting to work with that. Sometimes the people that are in trauma, they can access that gratitude. They're so depleted, their brain cannot go there. Do you believe in that, that we can be so mentally ill that we cannot see gratitude? We just see darkness? Sure. That could come with depression. It could come with severe anxiety. It could be part of the problem. And that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, I'm not saying that in any way you know, in a way that's not judgmental. There's um, a field within positive psychology, which is a, about a 10 to 15-year-old field, mostly coming out of the University of Pennsylvania, that has a lot of um, many, many hundreds of well-done empirical studies. 
that show that there's a science to be able to teach positive emotions mm-hmm. at the same time balancing with it um, validating and supporting the, the the pull towards anger or depression or anxiety you need both Right. Um, and, and both are equally valid, but there are ways of gradually getting to the point that you can become more and more comfortable with being able to focus as well on, on, on some of the positive. Um, and then there, you know, look, for anxiety, the key is to avoid avoidance. On a behavioral level, how do you learn to um, face things? How do you learn to face things even if they're very difficult? How do you learn in spite of the fact that every fiber of your being is pushing towards avoidance and pulling back? How do you learn to understand the part of life is to gradually and gently get more and more comfortable with facing and, 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 and uh, dealing with some difficulties? And that's, you know, that's the, the core of treatment of anxiety and depression. That takes time, and it takes a lot of professional help sometimes, and sometimes medication. It takes all kinds of all kinds of things, all kinds of like you know different approaches in the toolbox. What would you recommend to someone that's supporting, loving, kind? The person is real. The person that they're supporting is in severe trauma. It could be grief. It could be depression. The, they're not moving the needle forward. It's just going backwards. And the, the, the supporter is losing interest in supporting, but they don't want to disconnect. How do we still, besides support from uh, like support groups, how do we still stay connected when we're so disconnected? You mean how does the family member? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so there's, again, there's some wonderful resources out there. There's, um, I would strongly recommend a few resources. One is Dr. Amador, A-M-A-D-O-R, from Columbia mm-hmm. University. Have you talked about some of his work? Um, no, no. Has, um, he, he's written, um, he himself has um, um, had experience in his family mm-hmm. of severely ill family members. And he's a psychologist, and um, he's written and um, has all kinds of information available on the web on, on, on very specific kinds of guidelines in answer mm-hmm. to that question on how, okay. on, on how to support it. And, and what it mostly boils down to is exactly what we're talking about. You can't do it alone. You have to do it as a community. Right. Um, ways of being empathic and non-judgmental. Mm-hmm. Um, but also giving yourself, you know, uh, finding ways to make clear what you can and can't do. And I, I would really recommend looking at Dr. Amador's, um, some of Dr. Amador's uh, work. There was also, um, uh, the, the acronym is LEAP. Here's, here, here's, here's a summary. B- basic research this is a little bit of a different person that I was mentioning, but this is research done at Harvard by Dr. Beardsley. B-E-A-R-D-S-L-E-E. And what he finds is that the ability, it's, it's pretty much what I've been talking about, the ability for, for the family member and, and of somebody who has mental illness to be figure out a way to be empathic without being sucked in. Very hard, but Dr. Beardsley has written a number of books that gives mm-hmm. very specific examples on how to do that. 
Mm -hmm. Um, And then he says, giving the disorder a name and understanding that the, the sick family member is not to blame predicts resilience, okay? Um, the ability to separate out what the family member could do to help from what was outside of their control, and maybe the awareness that they can't cure—that it's—it's again, it takes it takes uh, it takes a community. Doctor Beerley, there's um, there's a if I could recommend a book, it's um, it, it's uh, well, you know what? I would just go online and look mm-hmm. for books for, to help family members by Doctor. William R. Beardsley, B-E-A-R-D-S-L-E-E. Mm-hmm. And also Dr. Amador's work goes in, you know, this is a very, very common, you know, nobody listening to this is alone. Right. This is something that a huge percentage of the population has to deal with. And like you're saying, Matana, this is not something that you're taught how to do. There's nothing in life to prepare you or your family members for this. It's very important to know that it's hard work and to not give up right away and to to look for the advice because there's so much advice, there's so much literature out there and there's so much research and there's a way. And sometimes the advice is to um, back off a little bit or to give them the the way to to heal on their own. It's a fine balance and sometimes it's so hard to know and to be okay with the fact that we don't know and it's a trial and error and you keep on trying. And when you feel depleted, maybe go refill yourself. If you're feeling depleted, you need to take care of yourself. And I think that's a, something so important that we forget as caretakers to to notice that if we don't take care of ourselves, everybody's going to fall apart. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's so important. By the way, and just the knowledge, just naming the monster mm-hmm. and being able to say, no, I'm feeling depleted and that's okay. That's mm-hmm. a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. That in and of itself is is incredibly empowering and, and, and healing. And, you know, and again, and it's, it's, uh, it's not just the psychoeducation, it's the, it's the increasing awareness, by the way, there's um, increasing understanding of something that in the, in, the, in the field is called desirable difficulties. That sometimes when we're able to understand that we grow sometimes from being faced with unbelievably unreasonable kinds of chronic stress and expectations. Nobody would choose it, but we can grow from it. There's a concept of post-traumatic growth. When we see stress that comes our way uh, as an engine of growth, Mm -hmm. and and I'm going to share with you the one thing I'll say in Hebrew, but I will translate it. Mm -hmm. There's a beautiful, beautiful piece of ancient knowledge coming from over the millennia mm-hmm. in terms of post-traumatic growth. And here's what it says. Ilu nafalti lokamti, which means that I never fell down, I never would have gotten up. Ilu yashafti bachoshech lo hayarli. If I never sat in the darkness, I never would have appreciated the light. So it's through the darkness that we appreciate the light. And it's through the falling down, we can understand how to get up. And it builds depth mm-hmm. and it builds growth. Yes. Nobody would choose it, mm-hmm. but when we're able to see it and mm-hmm. to see that part of it as something that we could grow from. So when I talk to family members of people 
the various kind of chronic either physical illnesses or mental illnesses or both, they often have a debt and they often have a deeper understanding of what matters in life. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the ability to do that and to see that is incredibly birth producing. I just interviewed Tal Ben-Shahar and we were just talking about that. He said, no one will ask for a crisis, but once a crisis happens, if you choose to learn from it, you will be in a better place than you were beforehand. And I said, I always say, for me, joy is waking up in the morning and just being happy with no depression. That is the ultimate joy for me. There is no, and I would never access that joy. I would continue my my search and yearning for joy of exterior joys, a new car, a new home, a travel, a vacation, flowers, whatever, constantly. I still love flowers and I still do that as my joy. But I, I, for me, just waking up in the morning and knowing that I am free of pain, I would have never experienced that if I didn't go through the hell I went through. And it's, and every morning I'm like, when I do my gratitude, I do gratitude um, every morning, I do a meditation and at night and during the day I'm in a few groups, but one of the things I close my eyes and I actually feel the joy because it reminds me how dark the darkness was and I should never forget it. You know, they say you should never forget the Holocaust. I That was my personal Holocaust, that depression. And I don't want to ever forget it. I want to in a way because you were just like a panic attack. You don't want to remember. You don't want to experience part of the trauma is from it happening again. So I, of course you don't want to feel it again, but you don't want to forget how far you came and how grateful to be that it's not there again. And I and I often say this to people that are in crisis in relationships. I said this can build you to a new level in your relationship when you overcome it. Hopefully, if you do it in the right way with the right support, to a level that you have you would never get to otherwise. A gratitude and appreciation for each other, depth of an understanding. Sometimes you have conversations with a loved one that went through trauma that you would have never gone through that episode in their life and you would never know about it and you would never understand why they react a certain way. So it really, it could be the crisis that brings to connection. And I'm happy you said that. Um, yeah. I want to ask you about trauma. Are we trying, when we do trauma work, do we try to forget about it or to just have it as an event that happened that doesn't trigger us? What's the goal? Yeah, that's a one, one, again, a wonderful uh, question. My belief is we need to not forget about it. We need to not have it at the center of our life, but have it something that we could integrate into our life. In other words, something that we could integrate the lessons of the trauma. Like you just said, it's you're a deeper, more um, productive, a whole different person because of what you went through, including a lot of positive. There's a magnificent parable, ancient parable, that, that goes like this. It, it's about a king, and the king is a very insecure king, and he has at the center of his crown a magnificent diamond bigger than the hope diamond. And... Every morning he wakes up, he has the crown on his nightstand, puts the crown on his head, and he is amazingly, amazingly kind of, it, it validates him and makes him feel like he has the, the, you know, the biggest and the best in the world. He's just amazingly happy about it. One day he wakes up, puts the crown on, he sees a flaw has developed right down the center of the, of the uh, diamond, and he spooked. But said a call to the kingdom, anybody who could fix this diamond, I will make wealthier beyond their wildest dreams. Some jewelers come from all over the world, can't fix the flaw. 
And um, it's impossible to fix the flaw because the flaw in a diamond is the flaw in the diamond until a little old chassid comes in, little old Jewish man, because it's a Jewish story from the Dovna Maggit, comes in and he takes an engraving tool and engraves magnificent leaves around the floor that now becomes the trunk of the tree that makes the diamond even more beautiful than it was before. Hmm. Make art make art out of the pain. Exactly. You can't fix, can't get rid of the flaw, but the flaw could become the centerpiece of something even more beautiful than it was before. Somebody once said that art is making something out of nothing, humor is making nothing out of something. And we need the art, and we need the humor, Wow. and we need to understand that whole beautiful, beautiful tree and tapestry that we could weave out of our suffering to make us into deeper people who integrate the lessons of the pain into a more fulfilling life. Wow. Is it healthy to do to do the humor part, making nothing out so. of something? Yeah, it's a I'm coping a, mechanism. I'm a huge believer in it. I think there's a lot of research that shows that humor, we're not talking about a sarcastic, angry humor. Right, humor, right, right. That is humor that helps people cope. I mean, I've seen people who've gone through unbelievable difficulties in their lives. Mm-hmm. And without the humor, they couldn't, you know, the kind of mash humor, you know, mm-hmm. from that old 70s TV right. show or 80s TV right. show. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, because I, I was always, I always wonder, my husband had a horrible upbringing. His mother left him, left everybody when he was nine, disappeared and never came back. Um, And being abandoned by a parent that didn't even tell you why and disassociates, but calls once a year to say, happy birthday, you're my child. So like there's a subtle abuse there. I'm your mother, but I'll disappear and I'll come back. And my husband is one of the most joyful, happy, laughing. And And I always say, well, are you masking dealing with the pain of the loss? And his answer is no, I choose to live the life of now and joy versus the pain of my loss. Is that a thing in trauma? Yeah. And that's exactly what we were talking about before with, you know, the choice to focus on the positive, to focus on the gratitude. That's not denial. That's an act of choice. That's what Tal Ben Shachar's magnificent work is all about. It's about the power of making that choice. And as you know, from having spoken to him in general, from your experience, that's, that's a skill. It's a skill you could build up. You could do count your blessing exercises and that really works. And you could build it into the fabric of your life to learn how to overcome the ordeal of the ordinary, which is often that we become habituated even the most spectacular gifts in our life. But if we could figure out a way to build in rituals that teach us how to find what to be grateful for. It's very easy to become habituated and to lose it. We tend to be most grateful to those who we don't know so well, people who unexpectedly help us with a flat tire on the highway. Least grateful to those we owe the most to, to a parent, to a friend, to a spouse. And to be able to learn how to override that, you know, in the ways that Tal's books talk about, mm-hmm. the work of Dr. Seligman and Penn talks about, mm-hmm. it makes, uh, it, it really works and it's associated with 
um, one of the most powerful um, tools in the toolbox of resilience. So there's no real roadmap and say, okay, first you have to grieve, then you have to be angry, then you have to feel lost, then you have to accept, then you have to rebuild, and then you have to be happy and count your blessing. Is Or it doesn't matter. Each one is individual the way they were very, to process. Very dangerous, I think, to believe that one size fits all. When it comes to trauma, I've been doing this work for over 40 years with, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a specialty in this area. Right. So I've seen, uh, I, I don't even know what the numbers are. <laughs> the trauma unfortunately. Of, but unfortunately, but you know, it's... Um, Thank God you're there. Very, very gratifying work right. because right. The, norm, the norm is resilience. Right. And, and one thing I've learned is one size doesn't fit all. As many different people as I've seen, no two people are the same. There are certain underlying principles and there are certain, you know, common pathways and common issues so that we can talk about, you know, therapeutic approaches that we know are helpful, you mm -hmm. know, and there's tremendous, tremendous body of knowledge out there in the field has become much better at doing this in a systematic way that can be extremely um, powerful. The mm -hmm. bottom line is nobody could tell you that you have to take this step or that step. Dangerous way to think. I just want to um, address the the question I asked before about reliving the trauma. It's not about it's not about forgetting. It's never about forgetting about it because forgetting is denial. Something happened. How do we deal with it, and how do we make turn it into a growth and positive? Even if it's a death of a loved one, even if it's we lose a child, God forbid, or um, divorce, but severe trauma, we can turn it into something big. Right. But again, while at the same time giving yourself permission to feel the pain. It's all about the gradual integration, which by the way, like you said before, there's no timeline on this. This may take you decades, mm -hmm. may take much less for some people. Right. Then again, it's not, it's not a, an event. It's a process. Right. And it goes very, very slowly. What I find is the biggest misconception on the part of friends and family members is the length of time that it takes. They just don't get it when they're doing that. And they have no way of knowing it because there's nobody who's taught it to them. It can take a very, very long time. And the key is to just continue to be there at people's sides to the extent that you're able to and to, you know, recognize that you can't be at the bottom of that hill alone without getting overwhelmed by the steepness of the hill. No, you need to have people at your side. And and I really love that hill because the hill is also for the supporter and also for the person that's going through the trauma. Both need support. No one can stand alone. And, and I love that analogy because maybe the supporters can actually look at what it's like to go through the support alone so they can be empathetic to the one that is struggling and say, oh, just like I can't go through supporting alone, they can't go through the healing alone and we're both at the bottom of the mountain how steep is it who's going to go with us and who's going to support us so i really appreciate that uh, analogy talking about loss and i know you specialize in um, trauma and loss so i want to go a little bit I, I know that my listeners are not, not all jewish but in the jewish perspective we do have timeline for mourning where is that source and why is it that the Jewish perspective, the religious perspective, tells us you have uh, 30 days or seven. It really starts from the first day before burial, then seven days after burial, then 30 days, depending if it's your parent, your brother, your sister, your spouse, a child, God forbid, 
and then there's the year, the 12 months. So there is a time frame that they're putting on our grief. How do we process that? Yeah, so my understanding, just speaking as a psychologist, purely as a psychologist, mm-hmm. my understanding of that is this is true. There's, um, and, and by the way, tremendous strength that comes in times of grief and loss to have the structure of ritual, you know, telling you and gradually reintroducing you into the community, starting with the earliest period where you're, you're totally absolved of any kind of ritual. Mm-hmm. before the burial right and you know the gradual reintroduction first right. during the seven day morning period then the 30 day morning period then the year but that doesn't mean as i understand it that there's a timeline really put on grief there's a phenomenally interesting um um letter written by Maimonides, you know, one mm-hmm. of the great rabbis of all history. Right. He's a physician and extremely respected rabbi and doctor and um and, and author. And he writes about the loss of his brother. I'm sorry, yeah, the loss of his younger brother. They found mm-hmm. this in the um Cairo Gnesa, in these ancient um uh, manuscripts found found in Cairo going back a number of years. In a letter that Maimonides' brother wrote, he said, you know, I, I, I lost my brother many years ago. And he talks about years and years and years later saying that he became so sick with grief that they gave him up as dead. Mm. That literally, he nearly died. This is Maimonides, nearly died with grief at the loss of his brother, who he was very, very close to. It turned out that his brother was in a shipwreck where not only did did Maimonides lose his brother, but he lost everything he owned in that shipwreck. They were business partners, and he had a care for his brother's widow and children. He totally changed his life, and it sounds like he became what in modern parlance we would call clinically severely depressed, severely, today I don't want to use the terms, but we probably call the pathological grief reaction, years and years later, Okay. And that's like, you know, one of the superstar <laughs> rabbis of all history. And okay? doctors. Yeah. Huh? And, and doctors. doctors right? Right. He was the doctor to the uh, to the heads of state, to, yes. to kings and um, some, all, all over all over that, that part of the civilized world. So that I take that to mean that it's true that religion prescribes all of these um, very wise kind of ways of approaching grief. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't take away from our right to, to grieve longer to mourn and to grieve over very long periods of time. Maybe it gives us permission to move forward out of guilt. Maybe I know Rabbi Orlowick doesn't like using the word guilt. Um, he said it shouldn't be part of our lexicon, but but maybe we have internal like they're dead. How can I be happy? But it gives us permission. Okay, you gave yourself time to grieve. Now it's time to move on and li- live because you're alive now. Don't die with the dead. Live life and move on. There's a time and place for everything. La calls man va'et. I, I I always wondered like what is that timeline because it could be confusing for as a Orthodox Jew. It could be very confusing what's the right thing um 
and what are we supposed to do and what are we not supposed to do? But I like that outlook. So you you deal with a lot of trauma, abuse, um, marital relationships in the Orthodox world. Do you feel that trauma is different in different religions and different cultures and different societies? And we can manufacture a certain traumas based on our culture? Yeah, I don't know the means for manufacturing. Yeah, there's definitely differences in um, in the way trauma shows itself in different cultures. I was um, privileged to have this unbelievable experience in Sri Lanka after that horrible tsunami that came with loss of hundreds of thousands of lives. And I spent a couple of weeks there um, with some colleagues um, training the trainers, training 40 physicians responsible for the emotional recovery of the people living in Sri Lanka. And uh, what hit me in a way that was enormously helpful for me afterwards was that we as Western psychiatrists and psychologists and mental health professionals brought our preconceived notions about trauma and how to recover from trauma to this ancient culture, okay? that had unbelievable wisdom. You know, they had built in to their culture all kinds of meditation and mindfulness practices. Mm-hmm. They, they knew much more about it than we did. Mm-hmm. They also had a whole different kind of an approach to how to deal with loss and how they, they wouldn't have bought what you just said or what, what we just said about you need to take care of yourself before you take care of others or something as a way of replenishing your battery. They don't go for they, they they think that that would be crazy. It's not a matter of right or wrong. It's they have a whole different worldview. There have been some work, works written by the well-meaning Western therapists who came to Sri Lanka after the tsunami and didn't understand how phenomenally different trauma is handled in different parts of the world. I once co-authored a measure, a an interview on um, how to measure different kinds of post-traumatic complex post-traumatic stress reaction. And I heard a fascinating lecture given on this measure that I was, you know, one of the one of the main authors of, uh, critiquing it for being culturally not relevant to other cultures. And he'd given that measure to many thousands of people in the Middle East and in Africa and showed that what was a reliable and valid and scientifically you know, very effective and helpful measure in the Western world was meaningless in Africa and in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And it was such an eye-opener for me. I happened to walk in on a session at a conference mm-hmm. critiquing my measure. I see my name up on, right. Right. on, on PowerPoint. <laughs> and it was like, you know, it was a real dose of humility. But it was so <laughs> growth-inducing. Talk about desirable difficulties growing from seeing like, wow, you know, my, my thoughts and my work is very bound by culture. So we have to we have to be open to all of that. I just interviewed a um, therapist from South Africa. She's from the Indian culture and she said that when her dad passed when she was 12, she was not allowed to share her emotions. You don't share your emotions. You pretend you're happy, you grieve, and then you pretend that you're happy, you don't share. And she said that it was stifling for her actually to not share and to not be able to share because that's a sign of weakness. So I think the stigma also in our culture, we have a lot of stigma that's getting better and better because 
the outcome of being silent is not so, uh, it's not a beautiful outcome, but um, to learn what is, what is a real emotion and what is culture, society telling us is such a hard thing when our, cult, when our culture and society is so loud and so dominant and so um, telling us how to live and how to show up. And I'm, I'm wondering if you feel like we, we need to um, educate leaders a little bit in our culture, in our societies, wherever we are in the world, how to not one size fits all and let people experience their experience versus telling them how to experience it. Absolutely. That's so important is that one of the things we teach, one of my, one of the hats I wear in my job at Yeshiva University is we teach rabbinical students. We have a series of four courses they take on pastoral psychology where we put a tremendous emphasis on how to deal with trauma. Mm -hmm. And one of the um, main points that we drum into their heads, these future rabbis, is exactly that point. You have to understand one size doesn't fit all. You have to understand how to validate and how to integrate the wisdom of the religion with the need to really have a good listening ear, to be a compassionate listener. And to understand, and this is, I think, universal, when you cry, emotional tears, okay, let's say I did an analysis of tears that come out of your eyes because of an allergy or tears that come out of your eyes because you're crying out of sadness and grief. The tears that come from sadness and grief under a microscope have cortisol in it. When you're crying, you're releasing stress hormones. Tears are often an incredibly important part of healing. Mm -hmm. The cultures that don't allow for that, I think that's universal. That's universal. Again, ancient wisdom going back over the millennia. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's a fascinating um, guideline. In, in Jewish writings that says, in Perkeavot, in this writing, it says, Don't try to give condolence to your friend when there hasn't even been a burial yet of the person they lost. Mm -hmm. So this rabbi in the, in the 1820s mm -hmm. writes the following. He says, on the contrary, when he sees that you're not giving him condolences and you're allowing him to cry with you just sort of being there at his side, allowing those tears, he'll cry even more. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't explain it, except that we right. understand that. Crying more is a gift. There are times that the gift of tears is the best thing we could do, but not all cultures uh, believe that. I believe that that might be universal. Right. And I appreciate the work that's being done because it's it's breaking some preconceived notions of how we have to show up at, in the religious world and in society as leaders, as parents, as teachers. And it's very helpful because there is a lot of trauma of we need to be one size fits all and we're not. And it's not even a godly thing to be one, one size fits all. And, and it's important to teach that to, to leaders. And I'm so grateful for the work that you're teaching and implementing because it's, it's important. Um, I, I have a few more questions before we, we got to go. I want to go through with you, if you can give us one or two practices for 
um, mindfulness because one of your things that you talk about about trauma and coming back, uh, releasing, getting over anxiety, getting out of the anxiety, grounding ourselves is mindfulness. It's hard to know what to be, what it is to be mindful if you have no idea what that is. It's like saying, "Go make a chocolate cake," but I'm not giving you the recipe. Figure it out. So if you could just give a, a like a little description of what it means to be mindful and a short exercise that anybody can implement whether they're into psychology or not. Right. Okay, sure. Let's, uh, let's, let's do that. That's something. Um, do you mind holding on for a second? I'm going to sure. get Dr. Rabbi Dr. Feiner's uh, book, which I know exactly where it is, and I'll read to you um, an exercise that he has. So I just want to give the audience a background. It's Dr. Feiner's book. It's called Mindfulness. And Jonathan Finer, and he has exercises there about mindful practices. Yeah. Okay. Here. So let me let me go through this with you. Um, so let, let me first of all just go over basically what mindfulness is. So it's paying attention in a particular way on purpose in the present moment and non-judgmentally. And I'll explain it as we go on. So we're going to break it down into first the what skills. What is mindfulness about? It's observing, describing, and participating, but in a totally non-judgmental way. It'll make sense when I read you from the script. So observing would be, let's say you want to eat mindfully, and you take out um, a piece of chocolate, let's say a Hershey kiss. So what we would do is, is we would just have you very slowly take, you know, even five minutes to very slowly open the Hershey Kiss. So observing would be you just notice the experience, you watch the sensations, thoughts, feeling, and urges come and go. It's called having a Teflon mind, meaning you don't let anything stick to you. You don't say to your, let's say you say to yourself, oh, I'm messing this up. So you say to yourself, that's fine, that's fine, you know. Do this non-judgmentally. That's the observing. It's just you're living in the present and watching the urges come and go and wash over you. That's the observing. Describing. After eating the kiss, the chocolate kiss, in a very, very slow way, you'd use words for the experience. You'll label the experience. Just the facts, no judgment. You might say, as I you know, unwrap the wrapper, I see that something I never noticed before, on the white piece of paper that you take the, um, the, the, the covering of the kiss off with, it says a word I never noticed before. You use words for the experience. You label it, just the facts. And then participating. You become one with the activity. You become spontaneous. No self-consciousness. And the key is don't judge. Stay focused. Do what works. If you're not doing it right, just say to yourself, that's fine. That's part of the exercise. It takes a very long time to learn how to do this right, but you can't mess it up. It takes a lot of practice. Um, I often recommend to people that if you have like a Fitbit, the new generation Fitbits, um, you know, those watches you wear, they now have built in two-minute relaxation exercises where they guide you by tracking your pulse. And taking normal breaths in and slow breaths out and give you kind of feedback that way. 
There are wonderful apps out there like Simply Being that you could download, um, uh, Calm, C-A-L-M. These apps are really gradually get you to learning mindfulness in a very practical kind of way. And it could change your life. If you just do it for a couple of minutes a day, it's, it becomes a very important part of the toolbox of dealing with some of the tougher times in your life. What happens in the brain when we are mindful? What's triggers and what's mindful, going on? What research shows is, is that literally um, uh, the parts of the brain that light up are the parts of the brain that are involved in healing. It's very helpful in lessening depression, lessening anxiety. It just uh, changes when they look at um, extremely practice mindfulness and meditation experts let's say Buddhist monks, they find that literally their brains are, are, are different. The parts of the brain that light up when you're anxious become more quiet. Mm. And over time, it becomes the cornerstone of being able to uh, change your wiring in a way that, that, that you become um, uh, physiologically uh, more, more chilled out. But you have to remember, it takes practice. And there are wonderful opportunities out there. What I love about Rabbi Dr. Feiner's book is, is that it's rooted in, in, in ancient wisdom that there's, there's tremendous traditions uh, in, terms of, um, in terms of Asian kind of philosophies, but there's equally ancient traditions in Jewish philosophy as well. Dr. Feiner's book, um, you know, very, very clearly lays that all out. Do you feel that it's something someone should implement, even if they don't go through trauma, to prevent extreme trauma, oh, like yeah. to prepare your body for impact? I think it's, I think it's, it should be part of everybody's life. I don't want to sound like such an evangelist about it, but I really find that if you're just being able to do it, and it's not, and after a while, it becomes part of you. And it just helps you. I, I went, um, I had a painful teeth cleaning yesterday, which is not, you know, one of the, one of the more routine, minor, low-level stresses of, of life. But um, I, I don't take any anesthesia, even though the, the doctor said, come on, let me give you an anesthetic. Whatever. And I, I just do simple breathing exercises and have been able to go through all kinds of, um, you know, very stressful kind of medical treatment uh, events with just, you know, the wisdom I learned from being able to do simple breathing and simple mindfulness. And I just put my brain in a different place. And I'm not terribly good at it, but over time I've become better. And it's just uh, one of the many toolboxes that I use in order to deal with the you know, chronic stress that's part of what life's all about. Is that um, Wim Hof's idea? Do you know who Wim Hof is? No, no, no. Tell me. How do you spell the name? I'd love to learn about it. So Wim, W-I-M, Hoff, I think it's H-O-F-F, Wim uh -huh. Hoff. He believes, he's German. Um, I, I don't know if he's a doctor, but he believes that your mind can overcome any kind of pain. And he believes in living in ice baths in order to be mindful and present to be able to, to sustain any kind of extreme impact from the world. It's, wow. it's phenomenal, phenomenal. But I guess that's the same I'll thing. Have look, I'll, I'll have to look that up. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I have um, a, a general question that I like asking professionals. Why do you think in a generation that we have so much knowledge, the stigma is, is breaking slowly, the, the icebergs are breaking and there's more talk about it, there's less shame, there's 
unlimited amount of resources, like you said. If anybody wants, you can go online, you can go to courses, books, doctors, understanding of the brain like never before, but yet suicide rates are up like never before. And trauma, anxiety, clinical depression, mental illness, like never before in history. You would think that it would come down. What is going on in our generation? Yeah, look, the the two major changes in terms of um, what at least we can speculate is behind the rise in depression and anxiety and suicide one major change is the pace of life. There's a lack of stillness in life. Um, so we have both the impact of technology and social media and never being off, always being on, always being connected. And we know that some of the rise of depression and anxiety, although it is somewhat controversial, maps onto the introduction of the iPhone Mm -hmm. and the pervasiveness of social media and the kind of um, superficial judging of our self-worth by uh, how many likes we have and, uh, you know, how we're presenting these false self to others, which is not a good recipe for that. Um, And also changes in parenting process and the balance between love and limit, where um, all love, no limits, children grow up to be overindulged and spoiled. All limits, no love rules without relationships equals rebellion. We need the middle. We need the middle. It's called authoritative parenting. And in recent years, there's been much more of parents being love specialists and not being particularly adept at putting limits on. So it's the combination of those two, I think, together being part of it. And then on top of it, there's the affluenza studies that show, uh, at Columbia by Dr. Soma Luther, that show that if you compare people who come from relatively affluent backgrounds and you, you compare those children um, to those who come from less affluent backgrounds, you know, kids who, who are low, low, lower socioeconomically in terms of financial challenges, contrary to expectations, triple the rate of depression in the affluent kids, triple the rate of anxiety, triple the rate of substance abuse. And she deconstructs this, Dr. Luther, in a number of studies, and she finds three active ingredients behind what she calls affluenza. One, it's never enough just to be average in these communities. It's hard to show your uniqueness. You don't go to your friends and brag, oh, um, my kid just got in the 50th percentile on SATs. And in fact, you need to be appreciated for your unique gifts. Right. And that's associated with The second one is time. Parents tend to outsource their time. Um, and they're not so terrific at... Um, being able to give their kids unqualified um, attention and time. And the third, that um, you have to give. In more affluent neighborhoods, kids often take. They may give as part of service learning to get into a better college. That doesn't count. To give for the sake of giving, just to help others out, is a basic building block. The Mm -hmm. Hebrew word matan, to give, is a palindrome. When you give, you get back. So when you build those three ingredients into your lives, you're going to lessen suicide rate um, and you're going to lessen depression and lessen anxiety. But it's complicated. There may be environmental reasons we don't quite understand. There's, There's so many changes that are taking place. But again, there's always hope and there's always the core ingredients of resilience, which is what your podcast is all about. I was going to ask you, how do we stay hopeful when the numbers are rising? 
that was my next question. How do we stay hopeful? Like somebody in your position that devoted his life, education, and continuous hard work for mental health, stability, and awareness, but yet the numbers of suicide are rising. How do we not feel like failures? I'm extremely hopeful. I'm extremely. First of all, it's true that they're rising, but I think also there, there's that's not a hundred percent universal. And more important, there's a, we're beginning to get it. Technology is a relatively new challenge. You know, the Hebrew word for hope is tikva, mm-hmm. which is the Hebrew word for a cord or a rope, meaning we're not dangling alone in the wind. Okay, mm-hmm. as long as there are people in society like you. And like, you know, all the people that you've been talking to who are there ready to throw a rope out, like, you know, a lifesaver out to people with research on resilience shows as what just one person who cares in your life, it could be mm-hmm. a husband, it could be a parent, it could be a close friend, makes all the difference. Right. Active meaning, finding meaning and purpose in life. There's always hope, okay? It's not like we're destined to all become suicidal. Not at all. And even what the research on social media shows, a rise in depression, it's a relatively small change. It's not like a hopeless, terrible thing. But you're right. We're we're living in a society that hasn't quite figured out how to deal Mm -hmm. um, well, but we're getting better. Kids more and more are asking for help and disconnecting Mm -hmm. from their devices, Mm -hmm. going from FOMO to JOMO. Mm -hmm. They're saying Going from the fear of missing out to the joy of missing out. They want help and disconnecting. And parents are beginning to recognize that I'm finding a lot of hope in in the work that I do in terms of people being very open and looking for input and help. Yeah. Um, Tal Ben-Shahar was saying something very similar to you. He says, um, just like in crisis, there's a correction like in the, what we were talking about before, there's no way to know greatness before the crisis. Once this crisis, it's a technology crisis, a world crisis, some kind of communication crisis. But then when the adjustment comes, there'll be a real communication and a, a living on a higher level in the future because of the crisis. We're, as you said, we're learning. We're still learning how to adjust to this crisis and we're learning how to grow from it. And parents are, are really adjusting and also teens and we're all adjusting adjusting to the crisis. So I guess that's the hope. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Can I ask yeah. you a last question before we go? A, a personal question as a parent. Mm-hmm. I feel as a parent that I decided to bring kids to the world. They didn't ask me to come and they didn't ask me to be their parents. I feel as a parent that I can't make demands of them how to live life and the way that that I feel appropriate. This is the way we do. We, we give, we, we do chesed. Like, this is the way I want my life to be. We're kind. We don't speak evil of others. Like my rules, you know, we're honest. We're not lazy. We're go-getters. When a kid wants to show up in life in a way that's uncomfortable for me, is it my place to educate them because they're young? Or do I just say like, let him just show up in the world the way he wants to show up? He didn't ask me to be his parent. I need to see him versus him seeing me. What's the fine balance there? Yeah, so my understanding, again, I think that there's strong psychological research and also strong Jewish tradition here. You need to find the balance. Again, kids, you need to put, look, kids need to know that 
that you're going to give them limits. Again, authoritative parenting is that balance. Again, if you don't put the limits on, kids will flounder. And I see it all the time in the 40 plus years I've been in practice. Kids all the time complain to me when I see them as adults. I wish my parents had been stricter with me when I'm younger, mm-hmm. even in terms of the internet. Mm-hmm. Most kids want more rules. And when they have mm-hmm. rules, they, they feel helped by that. Mm-hmm. It has to be done with love and flexibility and openness. And when you find that balance, it's an art. It's going to be different for every single kid. But uh, that's a, that's a, do you believe? Yeah, right. Do you believe in the saying, I'm the parent and I know better? Um, sometimes, sometimes you have to say it with, with, with warmth and with love. And the key is uh, flexibility. Thank you so, so much. We took a ton of his time. Thank you so, so much for your education and for your work. I appreciate all of your wisdom. Thanks so much. Have a good day. You too. Be well. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.